0: So I was uh, reviewing my notes and all this morning and I almost felt like, I, some of you may remember up until 2016, there was a, a show on public radio called A Prairie Home Companion. And, and at the end of that show, every week, Garrison Keillor would tell a story about a mythical town in Minnesota called Lake Wobegon. And he would always start the same way. Well, it was a quiet week in Lake Wobegon. And I looked at my opening line. and I went, well, it was a quiet week and in Wheaton, Illinois. Charlene and I went grocery shopping. Yeah, and, and I, I just kind of had that sense. But yeah, we did. We, we go grocery shopping together. That's something that we have done as a couple for many years. We would at times tell our kids, it's like mom and dad have a, a cheap date. And with the price of groceries now, we've thought about dressing up to go to the grocery store because, you know, it's now an expensive date. Uh, We have been grocery list people for many years. In fact, if you go into our kitchen, right there on the refrigerator, among all the pictures of grandkids, you know, the magnets on there, magnets on the one side of the fridge with people know in missions and all that we we stand by and support there is in a hallowed place on our refrigerator at the upper left hand corner the grocery list and next to it is a pencil stuck there by magnets and I want to tell you in our household if you use an item and you use it up and you don't write it on the grocery list Well, my friends, that's a rabbit hole you don't want to go down. Uh, It's tough. The grocery list is important. The grocery list helps us know when we need a backup for the pantry. The grocery list kind of keeps us in check so that we don't overspend. It gives us a guide. It becomes our standard. Lists are important. I bet you have some lists Maybe every night before you turn in, you make a to-do list, things you need to accomplish. That's one of the things I read somewhere where they said, that'll help you have a better night's sleep. If you write down the things you need to accomplish, set it aside, then you don't have to, you're not thinking about it. You have a plan. Maybe you've written down a list of books you want to read. Maybe you keep a running list of, of books that you want to read. Maybe you have a list of projects that you want to do things that you just want to accomplish or try, things, maybe recipes that you want to cook. Maybe you have a list of places you want to travel to sometime or classes you want to take. Lists are important. Years ago, I heard a speaker at a youth camp talk about significant lists in the Bible. Uh, He said the Bible contains lists for us that provide direction, they give us characteristics for living, that how we're to shape our lives as disciples to follow Jesus. Today, we are going to look at a very significant list in the Bible. Take your Bibles, if you have them this morning, and turn to Romans chapter 12. And the list that we're going to look at in Romans chapter 12 begins in verse 9. And it's a list that will help you and me live out a theology of love. It's a a lived theology of love that Paul gives to the Roman church here. You see, Paul wanted his his church and his audience in Rome to have a clear idea what it looks like to live what they say they believe. Now, as we saw a few weeks ago, The summary of everything Paul teaches up through chapter 11 was summarized in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Because of God's mercies, we're to give our lives to him as a living sacrifice. We're not to conform to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we know what God wants. And then the rest of Romans is going to show us how to live that out. And we saw last week that we live that out by having a proper view of ourselves. We called it a God-centered self-concept. And knowing that we have things that we do well because God's equipped us, and things that other people do well because God's equipped them, and in the faith community, he brings all of that together so we can serve him. But what about in the rest of the world? And so we're going to go through a list. In fact, you'll notice in your bulletin this morning an extra insert. We're going to go through 21 items. And as a PK, I know, as a pastor's kids, I know, the longer the list, the shorter the sermon, so don't worry. It's when there's two points that then you've got to worry. Oh. Because Paul wanted these folks to know that they are to live out their theology of love everywhere they go. I realize this list looks overwhelming as we're going to work through it. So I want to ask you to do this. In fact, we're going to pause a moment and I'm going to pray a prayer that I want you to pray in your heart with me. And it's a very simple one sentence prayer. It's this. Lord, in light of what I'm going to see today, help me focus on one behavior or attitude that you want me to change. Amen. Just look for one thing today. You'll have the whole list. Look for the one thing that God says, work on this. So in verses 9 through 21, we have these God-honoring behaviors that are to be for all people and toward all people, we are to behave the way that we see here in this list to, uh, as we interact with followers of Jesus and as we interact with non-followers of Jesus. And what they do is they reflect a God-centered self-concept. Now the list begins in Romans chapter 9, and, and right there it has two overarching concepts. These two concepts are going to be part and parcel of everything we talk about. Paul begins, love must be sincere. I put it this way, love must be genuine. I'm going to submit to you this morning that love is the overriding motive for everything that we do as followers of Jesus. Jesus told us, The first greatest command was love love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the second command is love your neighbors yourself. Love is to be the motive of what we do. When Paul talked to the church in Corinthians, wrote to the church in Corinthians, and in chapters 12, 13, and 14, talked about how to use their God-given abilities, in the middle of that is chapter 13, which is used for weddings, but Paul had no thought of a wedding when he wrote that chapter. His thought was, the motivating factor in your life is to be love. And love is to be all that we do. John tells us God is love. And here we're going to begin with love in chapter 12, verse 9. And when we get through with this section in, chapters, in chapter 13, 10, we're going to end with love. Love bookends this section. And Paul says love is to be sincere. The word that we get sincere from is the word we use, hypocrite. The the word hypocrite, the the Greek word, was used in the theater. See, in the theater in in those days in the first century, there weren't a lot of costumes, there were masks. And you would wear a mask that showed that you were a happy character or a mask that would show that you were a sad character or a mask that would show that you were an angry character. And the person on the stage was called a hypocrite. They were playing. They weren't themselves. They were playing a part. They were pretenders. Now you couple the word hypocrite with the the negative, then it could literally be translated Love without hypocrisy. And that's the head of the list. Everything else that we're going to talk about today stems from that. Love without hypocrisy. Don't be a fake. Don't just play like you're a Christian in church and live somebody else outside of church. Love without play-acting. Now, Paul gives us a second overarching theme. And interestingly enough, this theme, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, it appears here in 12.9. You'll see it again in 12.17. And you'll see it again at the very end of the section in 12.21. These are strong words. Wait, love, love, I feel good. But you're going to hate something too. Paul, you're confusing me. If love is to be without hypocrisy, then love is, and if love is to be real, and if love is to not be pretend, then love will not embrace anything that's evil. And the question is, how do we know the difference between good and evil? And that's a question that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when God said, don't eat from this tree because you're not able to fully discern what is good and evil. And so sometimes we have a difficulty separating the two. But we're to cling, we're to be cemented to what is good, and we're to abhor that which is evil. Now Paul doesn't just make these things up. He's not just sitting there like, you know, at a poetry slam with a bunch of guys around him saying, hey, here's a line, guys, what do you think of this? Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Ooh, that's good, Paul, that's good. No, He bases these things on what he knows from the Scripture. If you look at, you don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. Proverbs 8, verse 13 says this. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. What's evil? What am I supposed to not cling to? Pride, arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech flip over to the book of Amos in chapter 5, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 5 and going all the way through verse 15, the, the prophet was saying, here's what you're doing, nation of Israel, you're oppressing the poor, you're, you're promoting injustice, and he summarizes it in verse 15, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts, perhaps the Lord God will have, Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Love what is good, hate what is evil, or hate what is evil, love what is good. Injustice of any form is something God says we're not to be part of. Now with those two overarching realities, I've taken the rest of this list and I've broken it down into three sections. And and these are the sections I came up with. Somebody else may come up with something else But I think that this list helps us understand how to live here in the faith community and then how to live in the broader community and how to respond when we face adversity. So the first thing that we're going to see is God-like love begins in the faith community. Let me say that again. God-like love begins in the faith community. And the first thing Paul says, verse 10, is be devoted to one another. Be devoted to one another in love. The word love here and the word devoted here come from the same root word. It's a word that we often use as brotherly love. It's a word used in the first part of the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia is supposed to be the the city of brotherly love. Uh, People that I know that have been there say this is the city of Brotherly Shove, but that's what it's supposed to be. This is the ultimate expression of family loyalty. Sometimes we refer to our local church as a church family. and We all know that families aren't perfect. Uh, We long for our family to be loving and accepting and supportive and caring and nurturing, as well as gently correcting so that we make make each other better. And and Paul said, that's what it's to be in the local church family, in the community of faith, that you are to be devoted to one another with brotherly love. You are to truly care about one another. I I read an account once of a young youth pastor going, going into their very, very first church. And they were introduced and everybody clapped and all of that. And after people had, you know, come up and said, Hey, we're looking forward to you doing great things with our youth and turning them around and keeping them out of jail and all of that, one of the older members walked up to the youth minister and said, This, I want you to know that right or wrong, I'm for you. When you are right, I am going to stand with you. And when you are wrong, I will help correct you and walk with you through the situation. That's what it means to be devoted to one another in love. And that should be a desire for every one of us who claim to follow Jesus. Paul goes on, honor one another above yourselves. In other words, put others first. You look at that and you couple that with being devoted one another. If I'm devoted to you, then I'm going to care about you. I'm going to care about your needs. Honor was a high virtue in the first century. It means to value someone. We honor another. We value them when we put them first. We value them when we think about their needs. When, when you put honor and, devoted, honor and devoted to one another together, you have amazing unity. You have a group of people that just care about one another, that are concerned about one another. You have a true team idea where every person, no matter what they can or can't do, no matter what their abilities are, every person, every entity in the local church community, every entity in the faith community, every person is valued and accepted. That builds trust. That makes for a safe place. You want to be part of something where you feel valued and loved and accepted and and that people have the courage to help you grow. You want to be there. And coupled with that, Paul says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Serve the Lord by serving others with passion. The word lacking could actually be translated lazy. And the word zeal comes from a root word that emphasized putting haste to, making speed, really going after something. Later on, it was used to describe effort. And the idea of fervor here is the idea of passion. So that's where I kind of got my restatement of this. When you and I are loving one another, when we are honoring one another, if we're doing it for ourselves, so that people will see how loving we are and see how honoring we are, we are going to get lazy in our devotion because we're not being recognized and our passion will go away. We don't serve one another first. We serve the Lord first as we serve one another. That's what it's about. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. Stay strong, serving the Lord as you serve one another. Now the next three here, they kind of are together. I separated them out. It's in verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And I separated them out because I want to look at the context of coming alongside each other in the faith community. You got to understand the, the community to whom Paul was writing, those house churches in Rome, they were swimming upstream against a cultural and political power of Rome. They needed each other. They needed each other in the small groups and maybe when they maybe kind of saw each other in the community, we believe there were maybe about seven, maybe eight house churches that received this letter, maybe no more than 100, maybe 120 people in a city of a couple million. They needed each other. And you and I may not be facing the same physical persecution that they faced, but we navigate a culture that in a post-Christian world is not always friendly to those who put their faith in Christ. So Paul says, be joyful in hope. I expanded it this way, joyfully expect God to work. Hope in the Bible is not a wish, it's an expectation. No matter what you and I face collectively, no matter what you and I face individually, we should have a certainty A hope in a God who is there. Uh, We we need a God who is there and able. And we've seen in Romans, as we went through chapters 9, 10, and 11, that our God is sovereign. Our God isn't shaken by anything that happens in our world. And, And in that certainty of our God and His power, there's this quiet joy that gives us strength for whatever we face every day. Joyfully expect God to work. God is at work. Paul says, patient in affliction. Keep going when it's tough. We're going to see this played out in a few verses. When we face adversity, whether it's adversity for our faith, when we are leaning on God, we can face it with patience. When we face adversity in life circumstances that do afflict us, we can lean into it with patience. It's that God-centered patience that gives us strength to endure. Because when we are focused on God, we know that what we go through, no matter how hard it may be in the moment, is actually temporary in light of eternity. I've seen, heard this illustration before someone took a, a, a great big uh, rope and they like, put it at that corner of the room and stretched all the way to that corner of the room and they said, that's eternity. And then they took a magic marker, not a, uh, not a uh, big one, but a thin sharpie, and they put a little dot. And that's your life. In light of eternity, my life is a speck. The older I get, the more I realize that. You know, I, I, you know, we have a granddaughter that's 15. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wasn't she just born last week? You know, and the, you know, the more, the older you get, the faster time goes by. We're almost six months through 2023, by the way, people. This next week, we'll be halfway through the year. It's crazy. But that gives us this mindset that what I'm going through, as hard as it may be, it's temporary. Nothing, Romans chapter 8, the end of the chapter, nothing is more powerful in my life than the love of God. Keep going when it's tough. How do I do that? Well, look at the last one here. Faithful in prayer. You can change yours. I have constantly, consistently communicate to God. Change that to with. Consistently communicate with God. Because communicating isn't just telling God everything. It's learning to listen. As a person of a lot of words, it is hard for me to learn to listen. I work hard at it. What do we pray for in light of our cultural and life challenges? I don't think we just pray for them all to go away. I think as we see these qualities look together, we got to pray for God's joy, the strength of the joy of the Lord is my strength. God's joy in my life. We need to pray for that hope, that expectation. We need to pray for the strength of the patience that God can give us. And when we are faithful and consistent to pray for these things, we see the hand of God in ways we might not have. And when we pray for the blessing of any who may afflict us, we, we actually can see God glorified through the trial. Paul's not done. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Live generously. The word translated share is a word that we get our word fellowship from. And that word literally means to have something in common with. The idea here is that when someone in the faith community is in need, then I am in a sense, I'm in need as well. If you have a need, I have a need. If you have a concern, I have a concern. And when I feel that way, I enter into your need. And as I'm able, I might be able to do my part to help relieve that need. And the term translated here, need here is not just the idea of a physical or material need. It it can carry the idea of stress. The stress that comes along with the need. When I share with you, when you share with me, when we are generous with our time, generous with our abilities, generous with our stuff, there's a unity there. There's a, there's a dependency, an interdependency that is healthy. Live generously. And finally, in this section, practice hospitality. Be intentionally kind to strangers. Don't read our 21st century idea of hospitality back into this. Hospitality is not just having somebody over and putting on this fancy spread and having all the right dishes and 15 different forks lined up and uh, the spoon's here and the cups are here. No, that's that can be hospitality but don't limit it to that hospitality is not just an entra- uh, uh, an industry where they have clean rooms and good pools that's not hospitality as they knew it in the first century the listeners in the in Rome when they listened to Phoebe read this letter they knew exactly what she meant when Paul said practice hospitality hospitality is a word that literally means love to strangers on a week that we just finished International Refugee Day, what a great reminder, showing love to strangers. We have strangers in our country, aliens who've come here, that's the word that's used, foreigners who've come here because they left their home, and they're running, they're fleeing. The refugee crisis globally has grown exponentially. And I remember hearing an Assyrian refugee talk years ago down at the Katizo tea shop, and he said this, when we leave our home, we all take our keys in our pocket to our houses because we want to go home. Refugees don't want to, they want to be home. They want to be what's familiar. We need to practice hospitality by being showing love to strangers. And that's not just refugees. That's right here in our own faith community. That's in our larger community. We ought to be the people who are known For our intentional kindness to others. In the ancient world, if you did not show hospitality to someone, a traveler coming through your community, you were considered the worst of the worst in the community. To show kindness to a traveling stranger where there were no motels, no hotels, no no place to stay was to maybe give them a place to stay, maybe feed their animals that they were coming with them. Maybe give them a meal. and, And the word practice means to pursue hospitality. We ought to be intentional about being hospitable, kind, loving to others. Be intentionally welcoming. Now, by and large, that's how the faith community should operate. And I would say when you talk about the faith community, that really involves not all of us here. It involves our families. This, this ought to be part and parcel of who we are. But there's a second larger community in which we live. And God-like love is to be lived in the larger community. God-like love is to be lived out in the larger community. And that we picked that up. And, and let's go ahead and change that slide we we pick that up here. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do those words sound familiar? I, I find it interesting that I can take all of these characteristics and I can kind of see how they're somewhat of a commentary, as it were, on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said that in Matthew 5:44. He said, love our, your enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. Put it this way. Treat adversaries with kindness. We all have people in the larger community that are hard to get along with. It's just a fact of life. What does it mean to bless another person? The word bless literally means eulogize. Now, Paul's not saying cause their funeral so you can eulogize. And that's not the point here. He is saying... Don't respond in kind. Don't insult them even if they insult you. Don't run down their reputation even if they run down your reputation. How do you do that? How do you bless another? How do you eulogize another? Look for ways to genuinely compliment them. Pray for them, pray for their day. Pray for what's going on in their life that you don't know about that may have caused them to be an adversary. Pray and ask God to forgive them. We had communion a little bit ago. Jesus on the cross, what was his constant prayer? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These were people that were putting nails in his hands and his feet. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Pray for God to forgive them. And In a practical basis, it may be necessary for you to put some space between yourself and them so that you aren't tempted to curse them. Paul goes on. He says, um, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We use that here at Pleasant Hill Community Church when we talk about folks who come into membership. I would put the first one this way. Celebrate others. Celebrate others. In the larger community, celebrate others. Celebrate their successes. Celebrate their joys. And make that real and genuine, not backhanded and sour. If someone gets the promotion that you really thought you ought to get, you need to go up to them and say, I am so happy for you. Congratulations. Not like, I'm so happy for you that you're moving out of our department. You know, genuinely celebrate them. When you and I can truly celebrate and rejoice with others for the good things in their lives, we show them by our actions that we serve a God who gives good things. Mourn with those who mourn. Feel the hurt of others. I find it interesting when we want to assign a quote in the secular world, we usually just assign it to Mark Twain. And when we want to sign a quote in the spiritual world, we always say it was Augustine or maybe St. Francis. This one was attributed to Mark Twain, but I don't think he actually said it. But the quote is, I've never killed another person, but I've read some obituaries with glee. That's not feeling the hurt of another. The word mourn means to weep, to cry, to lament. In other words, to feel someone else's loss in the real world even if we do not suffer the loss even if we can't relate fully to the loss we have all faced loss of some kind and we know what it was like to face loss and we can be truly sorrowful truly sad for another's pain And sometimes in that sorrow, in that sadness, we can sit with another. And sometimes you don't need to say a word. Just to be there and to feel their pain with them is comforting. I've been there. I remember many years ago, our family and our extended family went through the excruciating pain of one of our loved ones taking their own life. That fall we were actually with our son on a band trip and and we were in a location where after the band trip we were right there where the the funeral was going to take place. And I can tell you my fellow band parents all of them knew what I did. All of them knew I was a pastor. And yet some of the the men would come up to me a couple of them just very clearly walked up we were I remember standing At a a, getting ready to walk across a a busy street, waiting for the light, and one of the men came up, put his arm around me, and said, Scott, how are you doing? How are you doing? We're so sorry for what you're going through. I'm supposed to be on that side of the ledger. That's my job. I'm supposed, and and, and the pastor was comforted. I, I, I can't fully put into words how deeply that touched my heart. We are God's comfort in the lives of others when we feel their hurt and mourn with them. Paul's not done. Live in harmony with one another. The word harmony comes from the same word that we saw all the way back in 12.3 to have a renewed mind. It's a word that has to do with how we think. You could translate it, be like-minded or be agreeable. Uh, Granted, in a culture that's not necessarily Christian, there are going to be differences. But as followers of Jesus, in the larger cultures, we can be proactive in relating to others and looking to find that common ground so our skills and abilities can mesh together. In music, harmony adds to the richness of a song. The basic tune is called the melody. But when they add the harmony, you know, when you you listen to, say, a a barbershop quartet or somebody and you you hear the depth of the harmony, it just makes the song come alive. We should be the ones that we allow God to let us bring the harmony, the depth to our relationships, live in harmony with one another. If we do it here, then we can do it out there. Paul says, do not be proud, but to be willing to, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Treat each person as valuable. The word proud here, and later on we'll see the word conceited, but the word proud and conceited have their roots in the word translated harmony. They all deal with the mind. And we're to be people whose mind is renewed. And that's supposed to impact our attitudes across the board. A proud person is exalted in his or her own mind. And in Rome, when Paul wrote this, there was definitely very rigid class distinctions. It was clear, well-developed, and if you were part of this class You couldn't get up to this class. You might be able to go up one, but you couldn't get to the top class. You couldn't get there. And we are to be the people who treat each person as valuable in our culture. We really need to be careful that we don't promote any sort of class distinction. People who may not have attained our level of education people who may not have obtained our level of income, people who may not have obtained our level of position in the company, people who may not have obtained our grade level, people who may not have obtained our area of expertise, are all people of infinite value and worth because they are created in the image of God. And we should treat every person that we encounter as valuable We should not be exalted in our own minds. But Paul couples that, finishes with says, do not be conceited. The other side of the coin is conceited. If pride is being exalted in my own mind, then conceit has the idea of only thinking of me. You know, I've got a great story and it's a story about me. Today's a good day for a story and it's a good day for a story about me. It's all about me. What's going to benefit me in this situation? Uh, what's going to advance my agenda? Uh, what's going to enhance my personal brand? Uh, it's all about me. But if I'm going to honor others, I can't be all about me. We, living within the larger community, need to be about others. I, as we wrap this up here in a couple minutes, here's a news flash we live in a litigious society. You may not have thought about that, but everybody is suing everybody. We live in an increasingly angry society. Civility is low on the totem pole. We live in a payback society. As followers of Jesus, we live in this world and and we have a choice. We We can either completely drop out of the culture, which is really impossible. I mean, if you want to, you can go live off the grid. But then I don't think you're engaging as Jesus wants you to. We can become just like the society. And if they're angry, I'm going to be angry. If they're not civil, I'm not going to be civil back. But then that's being conforming to the pattern of this world. Or we can choose a different way. And Paul shows us the different way. God, like love, does not retaliate, but trusts God. Let me say that again. God, like love, does not retaliate, but it trusts God. Paul begins in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Refuse to retaliate. Don't hear Paul saying, be a doormat and get walked all over. It's not what he's saying. Paul's not saying there's never a time to take a stand. Read Acts chapter 16. He took a stand. He spoke up. He used his voice. He demanded to be treated properly and with respect as a Roman citizen. He used that right. What Paul is saying is that as followers of Jesus, our first reaction should not be to retaliate. Our first reaction should not be to respond in a way that brings some sort of harm to another, whether it be reputational harm or otherwise. Retaliation is not the way of Jesus. Like a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Retaliation is is the way of conformity to the pattern of this world. And so Paul says, what am I supposed to do? Don't retaliate. Uh, by the way, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Remember, we saw that earlier on. There's that repeat of that. That's retaliation. He says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Live honorably in the community. Don't hear Paul saying, be a people Paul was not a people pleaser. But in the connection of not retaliating, not repaying evil for evil, act honorably. Fellow church member years ago took a job, a new job, and I don't even know how it happened, but I happened to be in a meeting where one of their supervisors was there. And somehow they kind of put two and two together and figured out that this was a person at my church and they pulled me off to the side and 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 confirmed, hey, does sons so go to your church? And those those questions always make me just a little bit nervous. Yes. They are amazing. We're so glad they're part of our company. I've already been able to tell by observing them that they are an asset to the company that we work in. They haven't got caught up in the the politics that always go around in the office. And and you know there's always office gossip. They, They haven't got caught into that. They just really do their work and they're kind to everyone. Live honorably in the community. Be that person. Paul says, do not, he says, if it is possible As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Be the peaceful one. As far as it depends on me, I'm to be the person that tries to live at peace with those around me. Now, I get it. There are those who don't want to live at peace. There are people in our world, in our orbit, that just want to stir stuff up, don't they? They just want to stir up strife. The person of peace knows when to stay involved and when to back out of the power struggle because it may not be worth the argument. A person of peace knows when to move forward and push the envelope and when not. Sometimes my perceived rights are not the most important thing. In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus at his arrest, expressed his rights. And he told his disciples he had the right and the authority and the power to call down 12 legions. That's 72,000, if you're keeping track. 12 legions of angels. But he gave up that right. The scriptures would be fulfilled. When I'm a person of peace, I'm not always pushing for my rights if I can maybe step aside from them and say, you know, there's something more important than what I think I need. Be the person of peace. Paul says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Instead of vengeance, show your faith in God through proactive love. All of this is summarized by that reminder that when we live a life of refusing to retaliate, striving for peace, living honorably, even among those who are not followers of Jesus, we first show that we are fully dependent on God, when we trust that he will repay. We trust him when when he reminds us not to take vengeance because he says, I have reserved the vengeance for myself. When I retaliate in vengeance... I have then left no room for God to work in a way that would bring true God-honoring resolution. In essence, I have robbed God of his self-assigned task. When we let God act, we act in a manner that I'm calling proactive love. Remember, this is about living a life of love, a theology of love that is not pretend, that is not hypocritical. So in proactive love, I meet the basic needs of my enemy. If they need food, I feed them. If they are thirsty, I give them something to drink. And, and Paul makes this statement here that has created all kinds of uh, you know, interpretations. You heap burning coals on their head. That doesn't mean it's like, yeah, ha <laughs> ha, take that. I was nice to you, and now look at you. No. The idea was, the idea of they will feel contrite because of the kindness that you gave them. For me, I I read this illustration years ago, and it's a word picture that works for me. It may or may not be historically accurate, but it's a great word picture. In the ancient world, in the first century, the fire in your house was important. You heated your house with fire. You cooked over fire. You lit your house at night with torches, with fire. If your fire goes out, your life is in danger. You could freeze to death. You could starve to death. Your adversary, somehow their fire goes out. You're the only one, you're the closest And they come over to your house. As it were, they knock on your door. And you open the door and there stands your adversary. There stands the one that has been against you. And they're holding a a, a bowl. And they look at you and they say, my fire went out. You have two options. Slam the door and go, tough. That's retaliation. Or you reach out and you take their bowl. You go over to your fireplace and you set the bowl down. And you rummage around and you, you, you scoop into the bowl some hot coals. And then you walk over to the door and you hand it back to your friend, your adversary. And they take the bowl of hot coals and they do what they did in the ancient world. They put it on their head and they walk home with their fire to relight their fire, to relight And reheat their house to have that which would provide light for their house so that they can cook and feed their family. Proactive love. Instead of vengeance, you and I show our faith in God through proactive love. And then Paul ends with the third reminder. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Transformed living makes a difference. When we live our lives claiming to follow Christ, then our actions are people of vengeance and retaliation and arrogance and pride and selfishness. We have become those who are conformed to the pattern of this world. And it's important that we check ourselves and lean on one another constantly to help one another to be the people of God-like love who by our love and humility like Jesus overcome the evil we see in this world with good. We need this list. None of us is going to achieve it perfectly. None of us are going to be able to complete the list and discard it like we do the grocery list at the end of the week and start with a new one. It should be for us a list of attitudes and behaviors that help us shape our lives so that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is a long list. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And and, and if you determine, okay, I'm going to do all these things this week, you are going to fail and be frustrated. Take stock of the attitudes that by God's grace are working in your life and thank God for his grace. And then thank, and, and that is what we call sober judgment. God, thank you that you've helped me in these areas. But then ask yourself and pray that prayer we started with and that we will close with. And let's pray. Lord, in light of what I've seen in this passage, what is the one behavior or one attitude that I need to change today? Help me make that change. In Jesus' name, amen.